0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the BJ Psych Advances podcast. Uh, my name is Oliver Gell Grant and I'm joined today by Professor Harry Kennedy, who is a Professor of Forensic Psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin and also Executive Clinical Director of the National Forensic Mental Health Service in Ireland. And we're here to discuss his new paper, which has been published in BJ Psych Advances called Models of Care in Forensic Psychiatry. Uh, Harry, thank you very, very much for joining us.
1: Good morning, Oliver. It's a pleasure to be
0: here. So your paper discusses essentially a way of planning an entire model of care in the context of forensic psychiatry. And so this is, uh, I suppose, something some psychiatrists won't have thought about. So perhaps we'll start by just talking through exactly what it is that's proposed. So as far as I see, you've got sort of a four-element model of care in which you have a written sort of constitution describing how you're going to plan your entire service. Is, Is that broadly correct?
1: Yes, Oliver. So this derives from our having, for more years than I, I like to remember, been involved in the planning and construction of a new forensic hospital for a population of five million here in Ireland. So most people will know that the Central Mental Hospital in Dundrum opened in 1850, 11 years before Broadmoor. We were a sort of trial run for Broadmoor. Um, and we are now replacing a very old building, a building that's beautiful from the outside, not very useful from the inside. When you set out to do that, architects start off by saying to you, what is your model of care? And actually that was the starting point for having to think about a model of care. So myself and my colleagues over at this stage, more than a decade, have been evolving this idea. In the middle of designing a hospital and then constructing it and planning the manpower, we realized that the building, of course, is just a shell and architects say, we do everything for you that you have to imagine a sort of doll's house, pick it up, turn it upside down, rattle it. Um, We'll do the bits that don't fall out. You have to do the rest. And of course, they then get interested in person flows. Where do people come in? Where do they go out? How many people work here during the day? How much space do we need for all of this? And then fundamentally, we, the clinicians have to start asking ourselves, well, actually, what are we at here? Because the hospital is just the in in forensic practice, the hospital is the large middle bit of a comprehensive pathway, which starts in the community, of course, but spends huge amount of our activities in prison inreach, in court diversion schemes, and in community aftercare. So putting that all together requires you to describe the whole system so that you can work out what the hospital does in the middle. And of course, the hospital's far more than the architecture. It's really about the treatment and the safe environment in which to deliver treatment. And then you begin to frame all of this. So In almost doubling the size of our service, as we move from the old hospital to the new hospital, we bring in lots and lots of new colleagues, new nurses, new allied health professionals. Um, We have to recruit and train highly specialized doctors. And you have to think, well, how do we explain to our new colleagues what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it? Um, And how will we know five years on from now that the enormous expenditure, the huge amount of activity was worth it. What are we actually trying to achieve? And all of this hangs together in this concept of a model of care.
0: So in your paper, essentially you break that very complicated concept down into four principles, which um, uh, you've called goals, pathways and processes, treatments, uh, evaluation and logic models. So maybe we we'll just talk through those very quickly. So, Uh, I suppose it starts with what the goal is of your model. So you've given some examples in the context of forensic psychiatry here of what could be reasonable goals.
1: Yes. Well, of course, the reason we're interested in goals is because mostly when you ask other people, what are their goals? What's the the guiding principle? They'll give you a lot of pieties and platitudes about, you know, making everything better and uh, The trouble with that, of course, is that it's very difficult to apply it in practical terms. So goals are quite important. What what we're trying to achieve, of course, is to vindicate people's rights, their rights to health, their rights to being in the least restrictive place. But in order to do that, um, we fundamentally have to provide a safe environment so that we can treat people who are a danger to themselves and others. So actually providing a therapeutically safe and secure environment is the next goal in a in an ordered hierarchy of goals after vindicating rights. After that, again, what we're really there to do, having provided a rights-based setting in which it is safe to treat, is to actually provide treatments. And one of the terrible truths in all of psychiatry is how little good modern evidence we have for what works so concentrating on that becomes very important and that brings you to the fourth most important goal and the the fourth element of a model of care and that's evaluation Mm -hmm. Um, there's, there's this terrific saying from chris webster the sort of founding author of the hcr20 and modern risk assessment that if you can't count something you can't see it Mm. And actually, if it's something that you think cannot be counted, it's probably not real. So Mm. there is a real obligation on us, particularly senior clinicians, service leaders, to evaluate Mm. uh, and to keep a, a long perspective. So one of the things that we're very concerned with, one of those goals, is to be sustainable. Mostly new services open in a blaze of glory. Everything's shiny and new and well-resourced and operates very well and meets a lot of those initial performance goals. You admit more people than you used to admit. Hopefully you discharge more people than you used to admit. So the real test is, will this be sustainable? Will we still be performing as well as we want to perform in five years' time? Mm
0: -hmm. And you've got some suggestions here for ways you can actually measure this performance so so ways you're going to evaluate these goals in, in a box in your paper here now some of these I suppose are things that are actually fairly standard measures that are probably used across certainly the NHS and lots of other healthcare services so there are things like how many people you're going to admit per 100,000 population a year how many are going to discharge which direction they're going to be moving in as in are people going to be moving from I suppose more restrictive to less restrictive settings now, the question I had: is are these things that you can be in control of, even in the relatively, I suppose, constrained environment of forensic psychiatry? There is a great deal of outside pressure on your uh, on your model, if, if you see what I mean. You know, if there's a delay in a, in another part of the service that you have no control over, say say in the forensic context, it might be a prison is is full and you can't send someone there. Then, how how do you deal with those sort of external pressures on on your system?
1: Well, fundamentally by evaluating to see what is happening. So if, if you don't realize that you are nested within larger systems, you will be the victims, the victim of circumstance and your patients will be the victim of those circumstances. That's, you're absolutely right, right there. Um, so maintaining that awareness through evaluating is a way that you can at least have your voice heard on behalf of your patients, advocate for the right pathways, the right services. There are ways you can influence this sort of thing. Um, Fundamentally, by delivering treatments, and the the logic model is a very important part of that. It's the relationship between the resources in to the health gains out. Now, again, you need to be thinking very hard about what counts as a health gain. Moving from a very secure place to a less secure place is an obvious example. And so these, um, these outcome measurements that you evaluate divide, I think, into two halves. There are population-based and organizational-based measures of how well you're doing as a service. And then there are patient level um, measures as well, which of course for us as clinicians are the fundamental goals. But the organizations we work within will quite rightly want to know what we're doing with the resources they provide us with. And for instance, if there are legally binding powers in courts to send patients to us, we need to show that we have that we are meeting those obligations. And if we need to influence commissioners about resources, we need to be able to show what it is that we need and why it is that we need it. So yes, admissions per 100,000 per year, about 0. 0.7 per 100,000 in a lot of countries. Um, the discharges per 100 beds or perhaps per 100 staff per year. Um, violence and restrictive practices, per hundred admissions, or per hundred beds, or perhaps per hundred staff, um, episodes of absconding, positive drug screens. Again, if we want to be a safe and therapeutic environment, we need to be drug free as well as violence free. Mm-hmm. And then at the individual level, what we have called the four recoveries. So recovery theory at the moment is, is one of those wonderful things, which is above and beyond criticism, and rightly and so. You know, it, like mother love and apple pie. Um, But there are four types of recovery, which in a sustainable, evaluated service, we have a responsibility to be aware of. Forensic recovery, moving people from highly restrictive, highly secure settings to less secure settings. Taking the person who lacks capacity to consent to their treatment and restoring that capacity, that's, that's a responsibility. Um, Symptomatic recovery, simply because it reduces suffering. Um, Highly symptomatic people are suffering. It's symptomatic severity is related to suicide and to violence. But then, of course, in modern times, functional recovery, and this brings us back to good evidence about what treatments work, restoring somebody as near as you can to autonomy, to independent functioning, or providing the the supports they need to at least fulfill their sense of of self, Um, self self-actualization, self-transcendence, people talk about. And then, then of course, personal recovery, which people often think of as all of recovery, but that's engaging the patient, co-production, hope, those vital things that motivate people to achieve their their own best level of health and independence. If we're not measuring those things, we can't see them, if we say they aren't measurable, we're probably a bit deluded. I'm very into quantitative things, as you might gather.
0: Yes, no, I, se- I sense that from this paper. Uh, I sense that very much. So I suppose the um, that's the sort of two halves of the, model, the the start and end of the model of care, uh, which is your goals and then your, your outcomes that we've discussed. So I suppose the uh, tricky part in, in some ways is how you're going to go from the goal to the outcome and that's these two elements of the model the pathways and processes and then the treatments. Um, There's some very nice diagrams I should say for anyone listening to this in in this paper and in the supplementary material of different sorts of models of essentially pathway flow throughout a system included in this paper but how can you know if your pathways or if your treatments are responsible for your final outcome? So I suppose, how, how would you know if you say, well, you know, well, the number of people are discharging for 100,000 beds is, is decreasing? How can you identify what you may be able to do to change that?
1: Well, uh, th- th- this goes back to Austin Bradford Hill and how we know anything in epidemiology or population-based studies. So a dose-response curve would be one way of looking at it. Do those who have more hours of face-to-face therapies do the, do better than those who don't? Now, There's a cause and effect loop there, which can be quite interesting because someone who is unable to engage in treatment or unwilling to engage in treatment will have less hours of face-to-face time and will make less progress. So we have to provide the treatment. We also then have a responsibility to engage and motivate so that people use the treatment. And while all the best evidence for effectiveness is about biological treatments, medications, Um, we've been pretty stagnant in that field for the last 40 odd years. Um, it's a long time since we had a new, very effective medication. Maybe the new biologicals will change that. But in the meantime, we do actually provide a wide range of psychological and occupational and family-based therapies for which there's very little evidence. And so working on that is a huge responsibility. There are very, very few randomized controlled trials of complex interventions in forensic psychiatry. We need to do a lot more of that. For that, we need to be networking. So again, in the same way that a model of care describes one service, a pathway here, for instance, I'm interested in a population of 5 million, but that's never going to be enough to do very large, systematic, randomized controlled trials of how to make things better, for that we need to be working cooperatively, internationally, in the same way that oncologists work. Um, if heaven, you know, heaven forbid one of us was diagnosed with a leukemia or a lymphoma tomorrow, we, the oncologist that we would be referred to would almost certainly offer us enrollment in an international multi-centre randomized controlled trial of treatment as usual versus treatment plus. It's, it's really disappointing and perhaps a little bit shocking that that hasn't happened in psychiatry yet. It's about time it did. And I think that can only happen in forensic psychiatry services because this is where we see relatively newly diagnosed, very severely ill people. And this is where we can control the conditions to actually know what it is we're delivering.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, as you say, I suppose one reason that doesn't happen in, in psychiatry is because assessing the impact of all of the, as you say, relatively unevidenced things like the therapeutic environment, like the relationship with, you know, members of the care team, other patients, it's very, very difficult, which therefore, yeah, I, I suppose, as you, as you say, the forensic psychiatry setting is arguably more controlled for that than some other parts of psychiatry. So obviously your, your paper is, is about forensic psychiatry. It's is, is considering making a model of care for a forensic setting. To what extent do you think this sort of thing is applicable to any part of psychiatry or indeed any clinical setting? So do you think uh, another service director looking to start their own service in, say, a different branch of psychiatry could apply this same sort of model that you have here? Uh, uh, not only can they, I think they should. Um, and, and I think this
1: is a universal. It's not unique to psychiatry either. This is old hat if you were um, a cardiologist, a a metabolic physician. Old age services, of course, have had these broad multidisciplinary, multi-agency models for years. What is fascinating is that most of the models of care that we all uh, train in as medical students and then as trainees, are implicit or tacit and it's when you have to start and think about making it explicit that it becomes quite interesting and actually a hugely uniting thing this is how you bind colleagues and patients and their families and communities into a a joint enterprise so one of the things that 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 people say about a model of care is that it's a bit like the Constitution. So most countries have a constitution, and all the laws, all the judgments, all the statutory instruments have to be compatible with that constitution. Well, and they are implicit within that constitution. The same is true here. So if, for instance, you are a new consultant appointed to manage a community mental health team or an adolescent service, for example you would have your part of larger service, neighbouring services either side of you, social services, education services, and so forth. And you would have to start thinking, well, how are we currently operating? What was my predecessor doing here? Do I want to keep doing what they were doing? What about my neighbours? Should I be doing stuff with them? Or do I want to do things slightly differently? Hmm. So at the very least, you can write standard operating policy for your own bit of it, Mm. but that will have to fit somehow in some larger system. And if no one has written that larger system down, you can start nudging your colleagues to put one together.
0: And that is a key uh, recommendation of your paper, isn't it, is that once you've made your model of care, uh, where you're setting one up, you have to write it down. And then, as far as I understand it, show it to to at least the new staff members, so people are aware of, of what's going on.
1: Yes, so we're in the process of almost doubling the size of our service as we move into the new hospital. Huge recruitment exercise of people who are completely new to forensic practice. And the HR managers all honestly believe, as a sort of article of faith, that all these new people are going to read all the policies. This is nonsense. This is, is, you know, heaven help their poor souls. They believe this sort of thing. We, you know, we have 40 core policies. Each of them runs to about 20-odd pages. Nobody's going to read those. You know, so the most you can hope for is that you can give them a model of care. Of, uh, ours is 13,000 words. It's a real thing. It's a document of 20 or 30 pages, 13,000 words, and it is possible to sit down with a cup of coffee and read it. And that's what we hope everybody will do Obviously, obviously, you know, they're all going to end up signing those policies. Yes, I've read this policy on how to, you know, how to do one thing or another. (laughs) And I'm sure they've looked at them. But I do want people to read the model of care.
0: Yes. So I suppose that leads to me nicely on to perhaps a couple of cynics questions to finish with. So, um, you know obviously in uh in the nhs in psychiatry pressure on services is enormously high i, I don't know if the same is true in ireland but i imagine it is so i suppose one question is how does the sort of model of care idea mesh with the reality that occurs in health services which is that best laid plans are very quickly scuppered so uh, one quote that i must pick up on in, in the um in your paper is to say is that a key part of the model of care to keep things flowing is that your bed occupancy should be 85 percent and as I'm sure you know bed occupancy numbers that are not in three figures are often a cause of great sort of red rag to a bull anger to people that have worked in in the NHS for a long time. So how can this sort of planning mesh with a reality in which sudden acute events are are almost uh, commonplace and plans are changed at a moment's notice by sort of higher powers?
1: That figure of 85% bed occupancy comes from a brilliant, brilliant, very senior colleague, Peter Millard, who was an old age physician in St. George's um, when I worked in London in the 1990s. And Peter Millard was an, a, a mathematician, fundamentally, who built on the work of a physiologist called Ludwig von Bertalanffy to mathematically model how hospital care worked, mostly in old age medicine in his case, though though also in, in psychiatry. So it, it's quite important to hold on to that, just as an explanation to commissioners and indeed patients on your waiting list for why it is that we're stuck with a waiting list. Here's how we might manage better. But that notion that you can mathematically model reality is always, of course, simplification, but also always a way of conceptually working out what really matters. So we, as clinicians, we are scientific about the patient in front of, of us, the individual person with whom we have a therapeutic relationship. As clinical managers, we have a responsibility to be often the only scientists in the room, the only ones who understand the, the sort of mathematical modeling that actually does shape what happens subsequently. It's extraordinary how little inform- knowledge there is more widely about how these things work, and yet they do work. Length of stay, for instance, shouldn't be expressed as a mean figure. It should be expressed as a half-life or a median. Um, Relatively few people are interested in this. I hope the article might raise awareness. It's a bookend for a piece I wrote also in advances in 2002, which was just defining therapeutic security. And of course, I didn't invent physical, relational, and procedural security. Other people have written about it beforehand. What, what you often find yourself doing, particularly for such a, a, a terrific journal as advances, and I'm flattering you guys here. Um, what you do is you write, you, you speak the culture, you write down what you learned in your own training so that it makes sense to other people. That piece in advances is, is, um, it still has some, some, some value. I, I referred back to it in this piece, but if you like, this new article is 18 years later, 19 years later what more did I wish I knew 20 years ago when I wrote that first one? This this is sort of the answer to that question. 85% occupancy, I hope so.
0: <laughs> Me too. Well, Harry, thank you very, very much for joining us. And uh, it's been an extremely thought-provoking discussion uh, of a very interesting article. Um, so that was Professor Harry Kennedy, who is a uh, Professor of Forensic Psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin and Executive Clinical Director of the National Forensic Mental Health Service. Um, we've been discussing his new article, Models of Care in Forensic Psychiatry, in BJ Psych Advances. Harry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Oliver. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.